Welcome to Hunter and Craft Radio. What's up, guys? Evan Lewis here with another episode of Hunter and Craft Radio. On this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by my good friend, Aaron Hitchens. Aaron is a partner at Rockhouse Motion, a boutique content creation firm focused on the outdoor lifestyle space. Aaron lives one of the craziest lives of anyone I know. He's constantly traveling around to remote places, filming these incredible videos for the clients that Rockhouse works with. Aaron's been instrumental in building the business up over the last few years. In this episode, he shares his best lessons on branding, sales, and business development. He shares some stories of his travels to the Yukon wilderness, surfing in New Zealand, and one of the best parts is his take on what hunting means to him as a person. Really unique and interesting episode. I know you're going to love it. Here's Aaron. Hitch, what is going on, buddy? How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Of course. A couple core things for us to go through today. I mean, the purpose of this podcast, I'm not sure if you've listened to many of the episodes, but really it's about talking to entrepreneurs, people with specializations in different areas. Uh, Yours is obviously really unique, which is what's really exciting about this this chat today. Uh, So it's really about packaging up the your best learnings your best uh the best things that you've encountered in your career and what you've uh learned from going through those hard knocks of building rock house um from you know kind of from the ground up uh so we're going to touch on you know rock house just the background of the company uh your best lessons on growing the business uh marketing we'll dive into a lot of the uh your experience with um creating the wicked content that you guys create uh, talk a little bit about travel, uh, productivity, that type of stuff. Um, so if you want to just give the listeners your background at a high level, uh, kind of, you know, where you grew up, where you came from, what you're all about and what you're doing today. I was born and raised Northwest of Ottawa in the, uh, pretty rural Ontario at the Opiongo high school. Um, always had a passion for the outdoors and a passion for science Um, I went to Western uh, initially for conservation biology, found out about Ivy. For some reason, they let me into the business school. (laughs) And uh, coming out of the business school, essentially, I felt that the the career paths of myself and my peers were being pretty highly influenced by each other and sort of the, the expectations of the school and the program. And I don't really know. It wasn't. It wasn't necessarily directly, um, directly dictated to us. But it just felt like there was a, a very, uh, very specific path that we were expected to go down. Uh, I didn't take that path. I ended up moving to Kansas immediately, <laughs> pretty much immediately after graduating. I uh, helped a, a friend at the time with a waterfowl hunting operation. So we were guiding duck and goose hunters. Uh, hunting's always been a passion of mine, and that was my passion. And what I learned through that was that work and passion uh, should overlap, but if they overlap too much and in the wrong way, it's not necessarily the best thing to have happen. And the, the real beauty in that experience was that I met Matt White and Dustin Lutt, who are currently my business partners at Rockhouse Motion. And at that time, Rockhouse was a young, but already uh, 
already sort of blossoming company in specifically in the hunting film and photography space. There was, a, you know, they, they, I will give full credit to, to Matt and Dusty for having set the course of the company with really premium premium work and meaningful stories and, and they began to develop a strong reputation for Rockhouse. So Matt actually started the company. It's named Rockhouse because of a uh, old stone home that his ancestors built in the backyard of his current house. He still lives on like the family homestead in extreme rural Kansas, I suppose, by uh, most standards. And, and it's in, on that very property that we actually have our company studio now. And since then, uh, we've basically grown Rockhouse as a I guess boutique content creation firm, uh, somewhat of a creative consultancy, and we have a, uh, a basically a client list that within the outdoors space with hunting and fishing, I think is a lot of the best brands and the leadership brands. So we're very proud of that group of uh, group of clientele, and and we do a lot of non-endemic work as well, working with with some mainstream brands uh, with specific projects. So we are. Uh, a, a unique company in that we aren't we aren't specialized in any specific deliverable. We do a lot of film. That's probably our, our strongest point and what we're best known for. But we really vary the scale of our production uh, greatly, and and that's what's really sort of unique about us is we can take things on and you know do entire branding campaigns for companies, or we can go and, and be specific sort of executioners within the, the grand scheme of a much larger thing. But basically we, we uh, hopefully make, make, make people feel feelings and then sell shit. <laughs> well, let me tell you, you do that very well. I, uh, I'm dying to get out for a fishing trip now after watching that, uh, that Rapala video that you guys just put out. But I got to ask before we dive into more of the Rockhouse stuff because there's there's so much great learning there from and, and interesting stuff to dig into in terms of you know the projects that you guys take on, um, how you structure your deals, how you go about actually executing on the videos and stuff like that. But you, you got to tell me, what's life like in rural Kansas? Life in rural Kansas is... Uh... It depends on who you are. I think <laughs> for many people, they would struggle with it. And for me, um, it was definitely an adjustment. But it's a very family-oriented place, and it's a very traditional place. And geographically, it's actually somewhat of a beautiful place, which people wouldn't really expect. But there's a huge volume of, uh, of wildlife. And personally, I don't do well in the summers because they're too hot. But the fall is, is a phenomenal time with the... Abundance of wildlife, uh, the hunting's great, and the uh, the hunting sort of stretches into the winter, and then the spring is is really beautiful as everything sort of pops to life in the breadbasket of America. And then it gets hot as hell, and I leave generally. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it's good, good. Uh, it's very traditional, uh, but I think that's probably the best way to put it. Nice, and I know you have probably one of the craziest travel schedules uh, of anyone I know. So. Just, you know, for the listeners to get a glimpse of what life is like in your world, maybe if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, some of the recent kind of trips that you've been on or what you've got coming up and just kind of a snapshot of the jet set, crazy outdoor lifestyle that you have right now. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely a, a wild part about our job. I spend, we were debating this recently, probably between a half to two thirds of my time on the road. 
which now that I, I live with my beautiful girlfriend in one of the most beautiful places in the world here in Canmore, Alberta, has become a little bit more of an issue, but uh, I love it. We I basically, we do a little bit of, of international travel, but recently it's been mainly within North America, and I guess, oh, I don't know, I was in Minneapolis, I was in Austin, I was in Salt Lake City, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas, I'm going to Lake of the Woods next week. I was in, it's funny when you start to forget, Nashville, <laughs> Louisville, Vegas. Uh, this is all basically since the new year. Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, Salt Lake again. <laughs> How'd you guys decide on uh, Canmore like, as a place to live? I mean, I think one of the main themes that we'll probably talk about throughout this conversation is that success is yours to define. And for me, uh, I have a very specific, I've been lucky to develop a specific understanding of the things in life that make me happy. And Canmore is a great hub for that. It's for all things outdoors, hunting and fishing and otherwise. And thankfully Logan shares a lot of those interests. So we decided to come here and it's not only beautiful, but it enables us to spend the time that we have at home doing things that uh, that make us make us happy. Awesome. Let's dig into the start of Rock House and kind of where you guys um, have gone since you know you kind of moved down to uh, to Kansas. So, what's if you could maybe tell us a little bit about your role specifically and kind of the, the early days. You know, some of the uh, the hard knocks that you may have gone through, um, and you know what you kind of learned trying to get the company a little bit more off the ground? Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, so my role specifically um, is in business development is a huge part of my job. I basically uh, handle the vast majority of that for our company. And I'm also very involved with the creative, um, you know, we have to we have to divide and conquer on the creative execution. But, you know, when we all get together on a film set, I'm generally the, uh, the director um, so I, I sort of take more of a hands-off approach um, as far as the, the actual shooting and then sort of step back in that. I do a lot of writing. And, and I you know, you have to be extremely flexible. So yeah, as far as some of the hard knocks, I mean, it's been, it's been pretty wild witnessing the growth of the company. And I think that a big part of that um, really just comes down to us having a, a refusal to produce anything that we're not proud of and being strategic about who we partnered with along the way and some of the brands that we've worked with, a lot of the, a lot of the opportunities that we've had for the, you know, for the highest dollar figures have not necessarily created the most value. And that's an important learning, I think. You know, a lot of the clients that we've worked with and, and maybe we work with at a discount or whatever else have provided either a body of work or a, po- a positive relationship or something that has allowed us to, to build on that and, and sort of move, move upwards within the market. And basically our goal from, from the outset has been to, to be leaders within our, you know, specifically within our space, within the hunt space. Uh, I feel like we've accomplished that. Um, I, I think that fishing is in our crosshairs now and with this Rapala, release i think we've accomplished that as well or at least we're in the conversation i mean it's a, it's always 
difficult to, uh, you know, in such a subjective field to, to really claim specific leadership over something, but we're definitely, you know, we're, we're on the forefront within that space. And now we've basically turned our crosshairs on the rest of the world and uh, anything that's cool and gets done, we want to do it. <laughs> and, and I think that we've kind of over the years worked with the right people and taken on the right projects to, to play to our strengths to, to get here. So a couple things to dig into there, right? Like, um, in terms of understanding your business, right? Like just at a high level, uh, you know, I, I assume that the majority of what you guys get paid for is doing like video production type stuff. So the Rapala thing, it's, you know, a two and a half minute kind of video reel. Um, is that kind of your core? Do you guys do uh, a range? I know you do kind of some long form video, some uh, short form, you know, you do some content marketing and ads, but what's kind of the, the scope and the range of services that you guys provide and what's kind of your sweet spot, I guess? That's a great question. I think our sweet, our sweet spot is in the uh, in those mid range, like those branded, you know, sort of two to five minute shorts, uh, and, and that's largely been out of necessity. I think that brands have, in my opinion, collective or correctly identified that that format of film is uh, gives them an opportunity to really strengthen their identity and uh, create a, a feeling that consumers are able to attach themselves to. I think that the traditional 30-second spot um, is, you know, it's obviously still completely relevant, but with the growth of web content, we've, you know, there's, there's more opportunity for for non-traditional formats and that two to five minute range really works well because you, you have a chance at least with the modern internet attention span of getting somebody to watch it and you're not necessarily limited to a certain length of time. That said, we've done stuff, you know, up into the 25 plus minute range. We deliver a lot of 15 second video, you know, for Instagram or for pre-roll and we do a ton of photography and, uh, and some writing stuff as well. So, Basically, yeah, we're, we're con any any sort of content. Um, we'll we'll take it on. Love it. So walk me through then. Uh, I'm really curious about this that Rapala video in particular. Obviously, it's kind of freshest in your mind, and you're you know you're clearly very proud of it as well. You should be. It's a sick video. Um, so that's something that not a lot of people, especially people who are listening to this, would you know ever have experience in producing that type of thing, right? So um, would love to just get a sense of, you know, from start to finish, what are the what are the main things that you guys think about um, and the main kind of challenges that you have to overcome when, you know, taking on that type of project? Like maybe just tell the story of how you guys actually put that piece together. That would be awesome. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a cool story because growing up uh, probably – Probably my sweetheart brand as a as a kid was Rapala and and also Cabela's who we're now working with as well. Um, they you know I I bought a ton of those lures and I remember I used to cut my neighbor's lawn and he was an outdoor writer and he would trade me Rapala lures in exchange for yard work basically. <laughs> so um, it's kind of fun now uh, working with that brand on a global scale out of their headquarters in Finland. But basically with that film. 
um, we'd been in, in conversation, sort of non-committal conversation with Rapala for a while. And uh, eventually I flew up to their headquarters and their Canadian headquarters in Oshawa. And there was one of their uh, Finnish guys was there. And, and basically we sat down and, and looked at what we were capable of doing. And obviously there's always budgetary limitations on, on everything, but we really set out with a goal to, uh, to put Rapala in a position of basically of ownership of fishing, which they are absolutely deserved of. They're, they outsell all their competitors. Like, you know, the next six or seven competitors or something like that basically are, uh, are like, they, they fucking dominate. <laughs> um, they're an 80 year old company. This is a company that, that I've loved since I was a kid that is dominant in the market. And we basically sat down to uh, basically a year ago now and decided that we would, you know, try and, and plant a big red and white Rapala flag in the fishing world. And that film is basically the result of that. And so it started out with, you know, what is the creative angle on it and what are we saying on behalf of Rapala? And basically what we decided was that we wanted to speak on behalf of fishing as a whole. Uh, the brand itself owns like six or eight or so sub-brands that are all, you know, sort of leadership brands within their category. But basically, an angler can go out and equip themselves entirely with uh, their brand or sub-brand of product and and fish for almost anything. So instead of speaking on behalf of, you know, this product performs this way, we wanted to roll out and say, look, this is fishing. This is why we fish. This is how... It you know how it makes us feel. This is why it's important, and make that statement on behalf of all of fishing, and then give Rapala the ownership of that statement. And uh, essentially, what we did is is we had a crazy, crazy ten day shoot. If you want to look at sort of the the most intense stuff that we do, and one of the big challenges for for filmmakers and uh, and photographers is the most beautiful time of day is dawn and dusk. <laughs> so we were shooting the last year through the summer solstice in Ontario and we were on the water, cameras rolling uh, for the first glimmer of sunlight in the morning and we were off on the water still for the last glimmer of sunset every night. We did that for 10 consecutive days, um, usually sleeping between, and I mean, without exaggeration, an hour and a half to to three hours a night for those 10 days and then on the water all day shooting uh, video and, and photos and it was an absolute grind but we came out of that as you might expect with an absolute ton of uh, ton of footage and then we supplemented that uh, basically with stuff that we were able to shoot on smaller uh, less formal projects you know I'd, I'd go fishing with a friend shoot a little bit of footage uh, worked with some of their pro staff and really tried to round out the variety of species and situations that we were fishing in and that was really important instead of it being we really didn't want it to feel regional and I don't think it does I think we succeeded in that but we shot throughout the year and uh, you know I, I basically had a couple of kokanees and sat down <laughs> and wrote the script and uh, with very little revision from there and I, I really appreciate the creative freedom that they gave me and the trust they put in us to, to execute that but I sat down wrote the script and and cut the film, and uh, I guess, yeah, a year from that meeting, it's live, and, and it's getting a ton of traffic in a lot of the, you know, premium fishing outlets, not just in, here in Canada, but in the States and, and globally as well, so it's really fun to be able to speak 
on behalf of a global brand that I've essentially uh, has been one of my favorite brands for as long as I can remember. So sweet. I love it. What, uh, so specifically on the directing piece, um, I guess you're kind of like the quarterback of, you know, the, the whole shoot, right? I, I assume you've got a number of different guys in different boats and stuff. That's what's so crazy about the situation you guys are in, right? Like you're, you know, you're up at dusk, you're in a whole bunch of different boats with all these crazy cameras. Like, uh, what have you learned, I guess, about, you know, leading teams or, you know, directing teams from those types of experiences? I think the most important thing is building a good team, like making sure that you're working with people that you like their work and you like them as people and you trust them and their integrity. And once you've built a quality team, what your job is to do is to, you know, is say, make sure that everybody's aware of the, the end goal and let them do their thing, especially in a creative space. It basically the way that we do things at Rockhouse, you know, with subcontractors or whatever else is it's like, this is the goal. This is the feeling we want to create. This is the overall um, branded objective. Do your thing. At the end of the day, we work with a ton of people, a lot of whom are much more talented than we are in specific fields. Mm -hmm. And it is ill-advised for me as a director or as the quarterback to tell a hairstylist how I want her to do <laughs> style, how I want, you know, somebody that's doing sound design to record sound or animation to do animation or graphic design to do graphic design. I, my job is to create an overall vision and, you know, there's always refinements within that, um, you know, just based on the necessity of the brand and the necessity of the project. But you really just, at the very core of it, find good people Make sure that they know what the goal is and let them do it. Because if they weren't capable, you wouldn't have them there in the first place. <laughs> so true. Yeah, it's so funny how vision seems to be a really recurring theme. Just you know, regardless of the business, right? I mean, um, if you don't have a north star, you know, something to rally a team around, um, you know, it's just kind of that really trickles down, right? People lose motivation. It's it's really hard to um, unite everyone. Um, but I think that's what makes great leaders great is being able to communicate that effectively and, and keep people aligned to that even when, you know, the chips are down and things like that. So, um, I'm curious about your contracts with Rockhouse. So you don't have to get into specifics necessarily, but obviously given that you're doing a lot of, you know, the business development and sales, um, do you guys have, like, do you work on retainer? Do you work per project? Um, you know, how do you have kind of recurring deals? And what have you learned, be like best about uh, specifically putting together uh, beneficial contracts for you guys um, in a services type business like you run? I think that the big thing is to understand value, and value is not necessarily always financial and. Uh, value means different things to different brands and different companies and it means different things to us at different times and so that's the biggest thing we will bill on an hourly basis to some clients we have annual retainers with others uh, basically flexibility can be super valuable um, you know the the creative freedom 
can be extremely valuable. You know, different ownership of content and distribution and all of that stuff. It's an it's a completely every company and every project is an independent case, and that's probably the thing that. Uh, as much as that's somewhat of a non-answer, I think that's the biggest answer is understanding what matters to different people and understanding how you can you can provide value to them in perhaps non-traditional ways and they can do the same for you. And, and that's really important is instead of, of sitting down and, and immediately digging in your heels and trying to extract the maximum financial um sort of yield from any situation or, or from them for sitting down and trying to spend as little as possible, hmm. really looking at, at, you know, I want my clients to, and our clients to, to win, you know, like I'm a competitive guy and that's, that's sort of an odd part about working in content creation and working with all these brands is, you know, you're, you're sort of facilitating success for these companies. And, you know, while you don't have, total ownership over it I want you know I don't want them to spend money in in ways that I think are ill-advised and I think that that's really important lens to look at it through yeah and it, it makes sales really easy when I truly believe that the money that they're spending is is money well spent and uh, and if you look at it as a you know sort of with a common goal I think that negotiations become a lot easier that's really interesting. That's you know a pretty nice contrast. Um, not in, in in the fact that we're. I mean, in a, as a software business uh, at Post Beyond, we're always obviously trying to, you know, sell value. And there, I totally agree. It. That's what. That's the only reason that you know I've um, had success in um, in selling that product is I truly believe in. It. I, you know, I use it more than anyone at our company, right? And um, I have seen tremendous value, and that obviously you know carries through in your conversations to um, to prospective clients. But one thing that we focus on a lot at Post Beyond that it sounds like you guys don't as much is predictability, right? So you know we really are trying to um, have just very repeatable deals. And I'm just curious if that's something that you guys focus on or you're not so concerned about just because, you know, you, all clients are so different and all projects are so dynamic. I think that repeatability is super important because, uh, you know, the, there's an inherent investment of time and energy that goes into recruitment of new clients that, you know, is, is somewhat of an opportunity cost from a pure production standpoint. Yeah. And uh, I think the way that we go about that is we really want to, you know, first of all, we make it make it known that we want our clients to win. We have integrity as a focus of our business, as, a, as a, the very core of our business model. Um, we develop, you know, meaningful professional and personal relationships with our clients. And we do really good work. And we think we do the best work. And if we're not doing the best work with clients, even if it's not necessarily in the uh, in the best financial interest of our company, we'll restructure the contract so that the work that we you know we're able to refocus assets into doing ultra premium stuff, and and maybe you know we'll do more volume and 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 less. You know, we'll do more volume with less investment, or we'll do less volume and more you know, impactful central pieces. And I think that repeatability is at the core of our business, but it's simply because we 
have an extremely high um, uh, success with client retention. Hmm. And we built some of our contracts to be year over year things, but at the end of the day, we just really work on on creating a positive client experience, and I think that that takes care of repeatability. Totally, and that's so core to the brand that you guys have built too, right? Obviously, like I think just naturally you have a, a pretty incredible knack for um, for branding and just for, you know, kind of carrying through that, uh, like the, the whole customer experience thing is something that we talk about a lot and I think uh, it's really cool to see how, you know, that stuff carries through no matter what type of business you're running, right? And I would, anyone who's listening to this, go to the Rockhouse Motion site and read through some of the copy. I took a read through of it and uh, it's, you know, it's cheeky, but it's uh, it rings very true. Like everything that you guys do as a brand is consistently awesome. I would say so. Um, <laughs> so kudos on uh, on the work that you guys have done there, just from a branding perspective. Because um, I think that you know, just you know, all the the graphics and the copy and everything, which I know you're kind of a core um, driving force behind it matches, you know, very, very well with everything you're talking about in terms of how you guys actually deliver your services and your end product. So, um, I think that's a really, really important lesson. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's, that's a lot of fun to write and our company photo is, is definitely something we're proud of. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that, that one's worth a look as well. And if you get bored, our, we have a, <laughs> a little bit of an attempt at an apparel line just, uh, for friends and family and, we needed a, a means of distributing it so you can you can actually buy it online. But the real glory there is is in the uh, product descriptions. It's probably the best work I've ever done. Uh, <laughs> I got to ask you about the. Uh, you got to tell the listeners about that camera that you're holding on your shoulder. The, I think it's the underwater one uh, in that photo. Like, what is that beast? Yeah, so that's one of our underwater housings. Um, Matt, my business partner, is a. Uh, extremely knowledgeable technically and very he's a he's a gear enthusiast to put it mildly so we have an obnoxious sum of camera gear and basically i rallied up the courage to 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 ask perhaps demand that we (laughs) uh explore having underwater camera capabilities so yeah that thing can go to like 300 feet our other two are for shallower water because we found that the majority of uh of our work in, in the water is not super deep, but uh, we want to have good, you know, it needs to be something that we're actually going to take places. So, yeah, it's, it's an underwater housing. I think that, uh, that that's something personally that I have a lot of fun shooting. Uh, growing up on the water in Ontario and doing whitewater kayaking and surfing in New Zealand and stuff, I'm pretty used to to getting having semi-traumatic experiences in and around the water, so it really lends itself to filming because it's never really comfortable or easy and and uh, it just sort of gives us another another playing field that we can uh, we can compete in, and, and uh, we have a, a technological advantage there. And uh, as the global VP of Rapala put it, Aaron, we can buy as much gear as you, but we will never replace you because nobody is as fucking crazy as you are. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that's that's also pretty core to my uh, my personal success. <laughs> That was a pretty shitty Finnish accent, so sorry for <laughs> Oh, man. Well, that definitely, uh, yeah, the, the underwater shots in that Rapala video are uh, are pretty badass. So I assume that uh, housing piece had a lot to do with that. Yeah, a lot of that stuff was, uh, 
was actually in Lake Ontario, right off of, uh, for all the Torontonians out there, know yourself included, that was right out, right out in front of Toronto, and uh, yeah, some of that stuff was pretty wild, we were in like 180 feet of water, chasing fish, you know, 20, 20, 30 feet under, um, so that was, uh, yeah, that was a big, that was a big part of it, it was challenging, those shots are, are hard to get. <laughs> So I think that's a really good segue into um, some travel stories because that's something that, you know, for Hunter and Craft, we're definitely really passionate about. It's definitely a huge piece just in terms of, you know, happiness and personal development and stuff like that. So uh, I know you've done a lot of traveling. Um, you actually put up a long time ago that the trip, uh, the story of the trip with your mom, I think. Um, so, yeah, maybe just kind of give a run through of, you know, some of the most memorable places, um, that you've been either for work or for personal, like what are some of your favorite places in the world? That's a great and very challenging question. <laughs> I think it's, I guess I have to really get specific as far as the places. Um, this fall we, uh, there's a film project, a major film project of ours that's going to be launching this summer with Outdoor Life magazine, but my uh, childhood friend and I flew into the basically Yukon wilderness on a moose hunt, and we ran a bunch of white water in a little hard shell canoe and flipped a bunch. And, uh, <laughs> anyways, we killed a couple moose, caught a bunch of fish, had an awesome time. Uh, that's certainly up there, just because the absolute absence of of humanity. I mean, we're basically a couple hundred kilometers away from everything. No trace of humanity, you know. Planes weren't. We're far enough north that planes aren't flying over. You know, you're just you're just isolated. So that's the Yukon. I mean, that's that's gorgeous. Um, New Zealand is certainly very high on that list. Uh, some of the spots that I used to surf there were uh, were exceptional. Again, you know, and I find personally that the the elements really contribute to my experience in a place and it's not necessarily like if it's nice and sunny you know and clear or whatever like that's I, I think that I, I really like places that I can feel and that whenever I reflect on I can you know I can remember remember how it felt and I remember one of my favorite places it's, it's a beach called Armoana in New Zealand and there's like 200 foot cliffs and it's uh, it's wild anyways I remember at one moment surfing and it was sleeting uh, and you know the water is like eight degrees celsius but it's awesome because if somebody learning to surf anywhere warm it's impossible because there's a million people and you know they're all good and you're canadian and terrible and <laughs> so i'm flailing around and, and really not making any progress but eventually uh, i moved to new zealand for my you know my last semester at ivy and basically learned to surf instead <laughs> but yeah, there, there really weren't any crowds and so i remember one moment there being about to drop into a wave and looking over and seeing a penguin like shoot out of the water and a sea lion behind it. And then as I went to like to drop into the wave, there was an albatross sort of sliding along, you know, the, how they ride the updraft of the wind on the front end of the wave. And there's an albatross cruising down towards me in this like sleet storm, you know, in the rough coast of New Zealand and, you know, waves that we had to ourselves. I mean, that's that's certainly a moment and a place that 
and in kind of a, a representation of what travel really means to me. The Pribilof Islands in Alaska were very similar to that, very intense, uh, you know, windy, cold, snowy, but just really raw and beautiful. These sort of remote island chains that don't have any trees on they're volcanic. I was actually there duck hunting. Imagine that. <laughs> um, and Patagonia, you know, is gorgeous. Uh, I really had a, a meaningful time there with my mom and went in the shoulder season again. It was fall and, uh, and you know, not, not necessarily beach weather, right? But it's, you know, there's less people and, and the, the forest was just on fire. Everything was changing color and, and gorgeous. And, uh, we, you know, we didn't have it to ourselves, but we, we were able to, to see some of that in sort of its most raw form. And, and that's really from a travel perspective, what's, uh, what's important to me. Your travel stories definitely put a city boy like me to shame, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm curious. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm going to love the answer just because I, I am, uh, I mean, I'm a bit of a softy when it comes to hunting just because I never grew up with it. But, uh, you know, as someone that's, that's completely foreign to me and I think for a lot of people and I know that's something that's obviously very deeply and spiritually important to you. Um, so I'd love you could just talk a little bit about um, you know what hunting means to you and and why I guess you feel um, so strongly and positively about having it as a part of your life. That that is again a very great question, and I'm I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak to it. Hunting is, um, you know, I mean, if if people don't eat meat and they don't spend time outside, then I can understand you know, not really having any interest in hunting, but I, from my experience, it's an extreme minority of people. Hunting is, is basically for me, you know, it's, it's essentially my church. It's, um, it's an experience in nature and in the outdoors that is much more intense than what you'd experience otherwise. Uh, a lot of the time, you know, I've been very lucky to introduce a ton of people to it and, you know, specifically on the canoe trip this past fall when we were moose hunting with my friend Will, you know, he guides river trips up there all the time. He's always up there. It's always beautiful. You know, he's always seeing it and seeing the wildlife and, you know, drifting on down river. But it's just the the immersion and the experience that hunting offers is, is unique. You know, in his words, he said that we were drifting down river and, in a, you know, in a similar situation to where he'd been all summer, except now he was hunting and all of a sudden you know, he could hear the creek in the trees and he heard, you know, the wind in the spruces and he noticed when a bird would fly out of the edge of the river and bathe. And there's just an intensity and an immensity that I experienced from like a, a natural, you know, just from a naturalist perspective, that's so much grander than what you'd notice if you go for a hike and look around and take a couple selfies, you know. And uh, and so that's that's probably the beginning of it. And, you know, from a from a human standpoint... I am a very proud and a celebrated carnivore. I eat the fuck out of some meat. And, uh, and there's an incredible feeling in having a connection to the meat and the, the food that you're consuming. Basically, you know, I think that there's, there's a pride that hunters take in the responsibility. You know, and it's like it's – it feels from, you know, even from a personal perspective like a cop-out – if I'm going to go to a grocery store and, and you know, swipe the old credit card and, and that's basically all that I have to do to, 
to get me. You know, it's it's sort of like it's a it's irresponsible almost, hmm. and it's I mean it's it's unavoidable. That's a reality of modern life. But the idea that that I know what it means to take a life, and I know what it means to to kill something. Um, I think is something that I'm proud of, and I think that while uh, every everyone that's eaten meat is responsible for the death of other animals, and everyone that's a human is responsible for the death of other animals. It's part of the, the you know the, I guess the tragedy and beauty of being a human. Shit dies because of us, and I'm willing to take that responsibility and get my hands bloody. And in fact, I I really love doing it because you know whether it's an uh, an ancestral thing. Uh, where we're genetically predisposed for the thrill of the chase and and the pride that comes with that, or whether it's simply a uh, you know a, a thing that I I'm you know I just like doing. I, I love the the challenge of hunting, and I love the uh, the success and failure that it brings, and the constant learning experience that comes with it, and and I love being responsible for uh, you know under knowing that. That I, I have a, I have a thorough understanding of what it takes to, to put food on the table. And that's a very long-winded and, and scattershot answer. So, <laughs> any way that specifically that you can guide me there would be appreciated. But that's, uh, that kind of, that kind of <laughs> puts a few of the points out there. <laughs> no, that was on point, man. That's, uh, I mean, it's it almost made me think in a way that you know you're you're kind of more responsible than the rest of us, and that. Um, you know, you're not necessarily killing for sport. It's, um, you know, you're eating what you kill. And, um, I mean, I buy chicken from the grocery store all the time, right? It's like, it's, it's kind of the same shit. Um, but also I think the, you know, the deep connection to nature is definitely something that resonates with me a lot. I mean, I'm sitting here in in my apartment in downtown Toronto and, um, I'm kind of, you know, I've lived in this place, uh, this apartment specifically for, you know, almost two years now and I'm starting to get pretty restless in that, you know, I don't have that escape, um, at the ready. I don't have that green space. Um, I don't have that ability to completely, you know, detect and get rid of all the screens around me and just kind of, uh, you know, become fully absorbed in nature. And that's, uh, that's something that I, I crave. Um, just, you know, there's nothing I love more than being on a camping trip or something like that. And I think, you know, hunting is kind of a natural extension of that. I don't know if, uh, necessarily, maybe you'll be the, uh, be the one to pop my hunting cherry, but, uh, I'm going to have to get out to, uh, to Canmore to make that happen. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think an important distinction, like you say, I don't do it for sport and that is, you know, I don't do it entirely for sport, but I love to do it and it's very fun. And, I, I never want to use sustenance or food as a as an excuse for hunting because it you know at the like that is absolutely a part of it. But I don't want to play the the feed my family card because you yeah. know realistically I have you know several other ways that I can I can get meat like everyone else. I just think that to me this is the most you know it's the most responsible way. It's the most fun way and. Uh, and I think that to, to your point about, you know, there's nothing better than a camping trip. So imagine a camping trip where there is success and there's failure and and both are good. And so when you're on a camping trip and it's 4.30 a.m. and there's going to be the sun coming up, you don't get out of bed because why the hell would you? 
But when you're hunting, you've been out of bed for 45 minutes and you're at the top of a mountain. So when that sun rises, you're in the very best place in the world to enjoy it. And you're there with a purpose. And, and it puts you in those places and in those moments that you would absolutely never recognize otherwise. And I've kind of realized this recently, but well, I was actually watching the Super Bowl and being pissed off at Peyton Manning for blowing the single greatest opportunity for a mic drop speech in human history with the <laughs> Budweiser bullshit. But uh, I was watching that and I was like, oh man, like look at the emotion, like all these guys and they're so pumped and they're crying and it's like this is their lifetime dream being realized. And uh, I sort of sat there for a second. I'm like, man, those guys are so lucky to be able to do that. And I'm like, and then I realized that that very moment that I'm lucky because I have the ability to do that. And even more so, when I go hunting, and how many people can can say this? When I go hunting or fishing for that matter, there is something very specific that I want to achieve. And whether that's catching a giant fish and letting it go, shooting you know a giant moose, which I was luckily able to do this fall, whatever that is, I have the opportunity to go out and realize a lifetime, lifelong goal with a legitimate reward whether that's you know the the photo of the fish the antlers from the moose the meat that comes with it uh you know whatever that is it's a tangible reward and this is something that i truly i have i have a desire for that similar to as much as any kid growing up wants to win the stanley cup the difference is that i can go pay 35 dollars buy a deer tag and go out in the woods and get it on my own and everybody that hunts and fishes has that opportunity and that opportunity and that success is unique when you win the Stanley Cup, you get your name engraved there with you know everybody that's ever won it. But when I go and I take an animal's life, that experience and that exchange of life is is ours alone, and the people that we're there with and that we choose to share it with. But that's ours, and it is. And I exaggerate not the slightest in saying this. Every bit as significant for me to succeed when I shot that moose this fall with my bow at nine yards in the middle of the Yukon wilderness. The feeling that I felt in that moment. And the immensity of that moment was in absolutely no way less significant and less celebratory than than somebody winning the Stanley Cup. And I cannot say that with enough emphasis. And everyone will roll their eyes hearing this, but I mean, it is it is entirely comparable. The difference is that I can't really do crossovers one way very well, <laughs> and uh, I lost my flexibility, and I don't play goalie anymore. But I can still go and do it, and I will be able to do it, you know, probably and hopefully until I die. And that's the greatest of gifts. And I guess, in, you know, in, a, in another long-winded and scattershot uh, example, that that is why I hunt. I love it. I love that uh, it was with a bow, too. That's uh, that's badass. Um, that's so funny. You know, just as I was, uh, as you were saying that, uh, I may be the only person who's ever made a an analogy between hunting and technology, but it stuck out to me the um, that you're talking about celebrating success and failure, and really, it's you know what sticks out about hunting is that it's always kind of a variable reward. You never know what you're gonna get, right? And you know you could completely strike out, or you know you could hit the jackpot, whatever it is. You know, big animal, small animal, and that's actually what they talk about a lot. Um, that makes um, technology addictive in that 
you know, a variable reward system kind of keeps you on your toes, right? You never know, you know, when you log into Facebook, how many notifications you're going to have, or if you're going to have them at all, or things like that. So that's actually something, um, there's this guy near AL who specializes in, you know, the psychology of um, addictive tech, and that's something that he talks about a lot, and um, kind of interesting how there's, you know, in, in addictive stuff, I mean, I, I assume, you know, hunting is definitely, um, has a, has an addiction factor to it, too. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Be my most redneck voice possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, and, that, and that's super compelling. And I think that the, the thing that comes with that is just the opportunity to learn every time you go. And, and I love learning and I love applying what I've learned. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think that, I think it, that, that's absolutely correct. It is completely addictive. And, and, uh, I mean, I, I would say that I have a, a very legitimate compulsion to hunt and fish and it's, it's, uh, it's, and it's something that, you know, I would, I would say I've introduced probably dozens of people to, and then I think the majority of them would feel the exact same way. So that the learning piece is something um, that we're obviously very passionate about, um, and it's definitely, you know, a, a continuing theme with this podcast. So we always like to end off with um, just an understanding of how you learn, and specifically some of the um, top recommendations you would have in terms of, you know, books you've read or apps you use or movies you've watched, things that have had a kind of a profound impact on you that um, you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, well, first of all, our entire company is basically revolves around Slack, which you introduced <laughs> me to. So, but so that, I mean, you know, with our companies in Kansas and I'm in Alberta, and Slack enables that. And it's so as far as apps, like, yeah, that's, that's the one. Um, Books and that's a that's a really tough question. I mean, we all have our, our personal our personal favorites. I love the Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I think that that's uh, that's kind of a compelling. It's a quirky film, but I think that it's uh, it's pretty compelling. I think that when it comes to learning, uh, fundamentally, I mean, we're always going to learn from our experiences and, and learn from other people. But what I think the most important thing that people do is learn about themselves. And that is in learning what they're good at. That's in learning what they're bad at. That's learning about what they care about and what they don't care about and understanding to them what success is and being comfortable with that success being different than it is for other people. And I think that that has enabled me to be successful. I think that there's a movement for people to do things that they're passionate about and that's important. But I think that, you know, do things that they're passionate about from a career standpoint. But I think that that shouldn't be the only measure. I think that you need to look at what what is, you know, what do you want to do? Like, where do you want to be? Who do you want to be with? What do you want to spend your time doing? You know, and, and until you know that, you know, the it's very, very difficult to select a career or succeed within your career. And... Um, I'm very lucky because I've known, you know, I, I'm, I'm very passionate about a number of things and I'm very comfortable in myself to make alternative decisions and, you know, alternative decisions that as of now, you know, have really paid off and, 
And I think that that would be, if I'm going to offer advice and, and, and learning, is take the time to travel alone or, or do things alone and understand when you have no obligation to anyone, what are the things that motivate you? And, and I think that that's probably the number one piece. And, and it's, if you can understand what motivates you personally, and maybe when you travel alone, you go and you're in Australia, which is where the specific moment happened for me that sort of led me down this path. Maybe you're there and you wake up and you sit on the beach all day and you get really drunk and you wake, go to bed and you wake up and do it again. And that's informative in and of itself because that means get a job that you can, you know, that's lucrative and that you get a lot of vacation and spend some time in, in uh, Cuba or whatever. Or maybe you just moved to Cuba. Who knows? But for me, what it was is, is I realized when I was traveling on my own that uh, I was really motivated by photography and motivated by capturing images and telling telling stories and and that I was willing to put myself in, in you know risky and uncomfortable situations to accomplish, to accomplish that and that sort of led me down the path to where I am today and it's I guess it's tough to it's it's tough to understand yourself when you're influenced by other people and existing obligations but try and find yourself in a space without obligation to anyone on your own and under, and look at what it is that you spend your time doing and then and and understand what you value and build your life around that that is a wrap on another episode of hunter and craft radio thanks so much for tuning in and thanks to aaron for coming on a lot of great lessons there so much good stuff on branding travel made me really want to get outside and uh, I hope you guys got some inspiration and uh, some good learning out of it. Make sure to keep in touch with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at Aaron Hitchens and definitely make sure you check out Rockhouse Motion. They're rockhousemotion.com on the web, Rockhouse Motion on uh, Twitter and Instagram and their Vimeo channel is unbelievable so don't miss those videos because you're in for a treat. Until next time, have a good one guys.